0: Reading from the February 24th issue of the Buffalo Criterion on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. First column Is That Right by Frank Gist, Heating Up the Kensington Expressway Project. Several years ago, a friend of mine who's lived on Humboldt Parkway his entire life told me about a proposal being talked about that would fill in and restore the Kensington Expressway to the old Humboldt Parkway we knew as children. I thought he was crazy and believed it to be a pipe dream and would never happen. I couldn't understand why and what would be the social and economic value behind the project. Yet ten years later, the Federal Environmental Agency greenlit the final steps to begin the billion-dollar Kensington Expressway cap and tunnel project. I must say up front, I don't object to the project itself. I object to the high cost of the project. A billion dollars is a lot of taxpayers' money that will largely go to white construction companies and their white union employees. From my simple-minded perspective, the project is a relatively straightforward and simple deconstruction task to backfill and cover and cap, forming a tunnel. Does that really need to cost a billion dollars to do? I recently read up on the undertaking and examined the blueprints of the project, and it occurred to me that there was an opportunity to make the project unique and special by utilizing modern tech means to Buffalo's biggest problem snow removal. Why not remake the entire Kensington Expressway and the surrounding neighborhoods winterproof? by laying heated roads and sidewalks from downtown to the airport. Do you know there's a city in Michigan, Holland, Michigan, that has had heated streets and sidewalks in its downtown district since 1998? And it has worked perfectly, according to reports. Businesses and residences in the area don't have to deal with snow shoveling and other winter-related issues because their sidewalks stay snow- and ice-free. It's done with 168 miles of tubing coiled beneath the concrete, it's the largest publicly-owned snowmelt system in the country. Also, there are several cities in Europe that have heated streets and sidewalks. Montreal, Canada is talking about it. Of course, Buffalo will be 25 years behind the rest of the world. Why can't Buffalo be a moderate model of modern cold-weather cities that's proactive against snow removal? My question is, can solar energy be stored and used to heat roads in the winter? Most don't know Buffalo has one of the largest solar panel factories in the country, owned by world premier innovator billionaire Elon Musk, who's sending people to space. Couldn't his engineers come up with a method to economically and efficiently use solar energy to heat the roadway and sidewalks of Buffalo? Maybe someone would build a factory to produce the things needed to winterize the entire city. But this is Buffalo, where we build stadiums with no dome twice— because we elect dumb politicians eye on history by Eva M Doyle a special thank you to the US Army Corps of Engineers for the invitation to speak for black history on Tuesday February 21st I spoke virtually for the US Army Corps Corps of Engineers for their black history program I would like to thank Deanna Maley from the Buffalo district for making the arrangements for me to speak Ms. Maley is the Equal Employment Specialist for Buffalo. I was not sure that I could make it because I've been ill all week. However, thanks be to God, I was able to do the presentation on black history. I spoke from 12 to 1 p.m. I was told there would be numerous people listening to the lecture. Many members were in other cities, from Chicago to Tennessee to Detroit and beyond, depending on where they were stationed. I read sections of my new book, entitled My 45-Year Journey Teaching Black History in the Home, School, and Community. Ms. Maley read my bio and parts of my website. I also read some of the articles I've written over the years. These included the Statue of Liberty, a symbol of freed slaves. The Haitians who fought in the American Revolution. A tribute to black veterans from the American Revolution, the Civil War, and the War of 1812. Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the father of black history. The Black Family on the Titanic. The African roots of composer Ludwig von Beethoven. The U.S. presidents of color who served in the White House. The slave trader John Hawkins and a slave ship called Jesus. I gave my references and documentation for each article. I've received many positive comments. However, one message stood out. I won't give his entire name, but he wrote the following. Dr. Doyle, I could have listened to you for hours. Your message of strength, inquisitiveness, thoroughness, and teamwork is compelling. I'm going out to get and read your books. Thank you for example of resilience and service of your family. Here he's speaking of the veterans in my family, which I listed during my presentation. Thanks again, and I hope you're feeling better. I did notice how you gained strength by talking about your important work. Very respectfully. Another column, there they go again, Gut or Shut Down, DEI Initiatives by Norman Franklin. Does America have a race problem? Is systemic racism permeating every fiber of the socioeconomic, sociopolitical institutions of America? Are race-based theories, particularly the critical race theory, liberal extremism, or is it a reality that remains unacknowledged, the big gray elephant always in the room? Answers trending from conservative Republican majorities grant us some perspective. Racism does not exist. And if history is properly presented, it never existed. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida signed into a law a bill that bans initiatives on diversity, equity, and inclusion. He viewed them as discriminatory practices. This was in April 2023. In May, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas followed the suit with legislation that shuttered all DEI initiatives. A June 2023 SCOTUS decision gutted affirmative action. A July Harvest Business Review article, why companies can and should recommit to DEI in the wake of the SCOTUS decision debunks a myth. African-Americans have been the face of affirmative action. The article by Tina Opel and Ella Washington reveals that white women benefited the greater from affirmative action policies. America has a proclivity for scapegoating African-Americans. Ronald Reagan's fictitious Cadillac welfare queen pictured blacks as milking the welfare system, when in fact whites were the greater number on the welfare rolls. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, is the latest boogeyman. DEI is about promoting awareness of our differences, addressing structural inequalities, and creating an environment of community and respect for human differences and social identities. Opponents portray an ominous goal of DEI. More than 20 states have a combined 50 bills pending or signed into law that restrict or eliminate DEI programs. They purport to protect First Amendment free speech and shield potential employees and students from coercive practices. They are forced to align with divisive discriminatory policies of DEI initiatives, they assert. Legislators take the floor and pontificate destruction to our democratic system of government. Some draw analogies to Marxism and communism. There is no mention of the centuries long system of chattel slavery or the decades of codified discrimination that fostered the inequities which must be righted. According to Acts seventeen, twenty six, God made every nation and people from one bloodline, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. But we are different. We were made that way. We process our experiences differently and come up with perspectives influenced by our experiences. In our nation of Christian leadership, this great melting pot of democracy, those differences should not erect invisible fences that keep us opposed to the goodwill of one another. The truth should tear down the fences and set us free. We cannot deny the interconnectedness of the past and the present. We cannot deny America's history and its imprint on the discord in our society, the imbalance in our economy, and the ambiance of conflicted dysfunction in our government, state and federal. Conservative legislatures move to prohibit the inclusion of African American history in academic curriculum. Native American history is generally equally shunned. African-American history and Native American history is American history. However, the amalgamated and comfortable version legislators prefer castrates our experiences and insults our heritage. The genesis of the opposition is that whites should not experience guilt when learning about history. That's a misappropriation of guilt. Knowledge of the past bears no guilt. It could lead to shame, and shame spurs corrective action to ensure that mistakes are not repeated. Erasure of African-American and Native American history justifies the opposition to DEI initiatives. It denies the need to correct the imbalance resulting from generations of a privileged, marginalized social construct. If there is no cause, there's no effect. There's no need to take institutional corrective measures. When the seats of government, the legislative and executive branches, rest in the hands of one ideological movement, unrestrained by the weakness of opposition, legislative measures born out of the simmering angst of decades of feigned go-along-with-social correctives are pushed through that roll back the progress toward a more perfect union. The legislative body is comfortable with the imbalance of power and inequalities of society. They wield the sphere of authority over the marginalized. The African-American could feel a sense of betrayal. But we felt the sting of ingratitude when we returned from the battlefields in Europe and the Pacific Theater. Our red blood soaked into foreign soils, but many were denied access to the GI benefits that fueled post-war prosperity. Those who govern are the descendants of those who enslaved us. They deny the inhumanity of this immoral and unjust system. Those who govern are the generations of those who codified black codes and Jim Crow laws into a social construct that devalued black life and castrated their dignity. These are the progeny, the sons and daughters of those who have benefited from systemic injustice, but deny that inequality permeates every fiber of the social construct of America. It's all they've known. It feels so normal. They can feel justified in the unjust laws they legislate. They can feel comfortable in the rollback of corrective measures. They can see no wrong in ending DEI initiatives. As Ronald Reagan, the quintessential Republican, said during a presidential debate, there you go again. Another column. Most cities are removing expressways, while Buffalo wants to install a toxic tunnel by Betty Jean Grant. We are women warriors. From Seattle, Washington, to Washington, D.C., cities in America are correcting the mistakes that urban planners made when they decided to construct massive and expensive highways and expressways in densely populated areas, particularly those areas and neighborhoods populated by African Americans. It is not lost on any of us who are followers of current news, as well as historical facts, that the movement to remove expressways from urban areas had more to do with President Joe Biden and the National Movement to Reconnect Communities than anything else. The only difference is that the activists in most of those other cities worked with and carried the will of the people in their advocacy of getting resources for their respective neighborhoods. But here in Buffalo, the will of the residents on Humboldt Parkway is not known because they were left out of negotiations and meetings that were deciding which option or plan was in the best interest of those homeowners who have severe medical problems and complications from breathing the toxic air and carbon monoxide coming from the 33 expressway that was forced on them since the 1960s. While insensitive and short-visioned politicians are clapping and slapping themselves on the backs for convincing a courageous but naive group of activists to buy into the scheme to give quick access to the suburbanites to get downtown faster by driving through a tunnel on an expressway that should have been removed as quickly as possible, the residents of Humboldt Parkway have been cast aside and ignored. They... And the many health issues they've acquired by living so close to the expressway did not even get the attention of our current governor, who came to Buffalo to tout the tunnel. Here are just a few of the many expressways that have been removed in cities all across this country. In addition to the expressways listed below that have been removed, at least 35 additional highways are being slated for removal as I write this op-ed. The Central Artery in Boston, Massachusetts, was removed in 2003. It was replaced with an urban development project. The Central Freeway in San Francisco was removed in 1993. It was replaced by boulevards. The Harbor Drive Expressway was removed in 1974. It was replaced with a waterfront park. The Inner Belt in Akron, Ohio, was removed in 2017. It was replaced with parkland and urban development The inner loop in Rochester, New York was removed in 2014. It was replaced with an urban street and parkland. Interstate 3 in Fort Worth, Texas was removed in 2001 and replaced with urban development. Interstate 170 in Baltimore, Maryland was removed in 2010 and was replaced with an expansion of parking lots. And the list goes on. Interstate 195, Providence, Rhode Island removed the Providence's RII in 2011 and replaced it with urban development projects. In the Bronx, New York City, they removed the Sheridan Expressway in 2017 and replaced it with boulevards. New Haven, Connecticut, removed the Oak Street Connector in 2013 and replaced it with urban development. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, removed its Park Pass Park East Freeway in 2002 and replaced it with urban development. In 2002, Oklahoma City removed the Oklahoma City Expressway and replaced it with boulevard conversions. In Manhattan, New York City, the West Side Elevated Highway was removed in 1977 and replaced with an urban boulevard. The year 2016 marked the end of the Southeast Freeway in Washington, D.C. Finally, in New York State, we saw the removal of the Robert Moses or the Niagara Scenic Parkway in 2016. It has been, or will be, replaced with a converted boulevard. Also in the fall of 2023, Syracuse, New York voted to remove the I-81 and replace it with urban development projects. The designer of Our Modern Day Expressways stated he never intended for expressways to be built in cities or densely populated areas. He said they were intended to speed up traffic only in rural areas or country roads where the only inhabitants would be the pigs or cows on those backwoods farms. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Buffalo Criterion on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Spoken for the Culture by Veronica Golden, LMSW Throughout time, African Americans have shown how resilient we are via spoken word. The words and how we create love and life through our words transcend color lines. There's a quote by Philip Freelon, the lead architect of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of African American History and Culture that says, I always say African American history is the quintessential American story. It's about perseverance and resilience, something everyone can relate to. Resilience can be defined as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or adversity. Young and old can develop resiliency by practicing gratitude to gain perspective and reframing struggles as opportunities to grow. Spoken word is a mode of expression to address issues that affect society such as education, employment, empowerment, entertainment, and emotional intelligence. Spoken word is also an oral art that focuses on the aesthetics of wordplay and voice inflection. Spoken word can include poetry, hip-hop, jazz, and R&B. Sometimes young people struggle with how to verbalize their feelings, and so listening to someone else with a more expanded vocabulary helps them to identify and release what they're dealing with internally. Two examples of well-known spoken word artists are Maya Angelou and Lauren Hill. Maya Angelou is an author, poet, and civil rights activist. She has a poem called The Mask, about someone's survival mechanism of smiling and laughing to get through hard times. My life has been one great big joke, a dance that walked, a song was spoke, I laughed so hard I nearly choked when I think about myself, they keep my race alive by wearing the mask. Lauren Hill is a rapper, singer, and songwriter that's known for expressing herself over a beat. In her song, Everything is Everything, she says, After winter, March, comes spring. Change will come eventually. Sometimes it seems we'll touch that dream, but dreams come slow or not at all. Tomorrow, our seeds will grow. All we need is dedication. In a world that's continually evolving with technology, it's good to know that human experience and our resiliency cannot be taken over by robots. The Minority Bar Foundation incorporated to host annual awards ceremony. Six honorees will be recognized for exemplary service to the bar profession and community. Two law students will be awarded the Honorable Hugh B. Scott Scholarship. The Minority Bar Bar Foundation, Incorporated Foundation, has announced that it will host its 40th annual awards ceremony on Wednesday, March 13, 2024, at 5.30 p.m. at the Buffalo Club, 388 Delaware Avenue, Buffalo. The Honorable Byron Brown will be the keynote speaker. Each year, the foundation recognizes law practitioners, students, community leaders, and organizations that serve minority communities. This year's honorees include Lifetime Achievement Award Hugh M. Russ III, Esquire Hodgson Russ, LLP Legal Service Award Trini E. Ross, Esquire United States Attorney for the Western District of New York Honorable Rose Trail Trailblazer Award Tasha E. Moore, Esquire 8th Judicial District Community Service Award, Andrew M. Wilson, Esquire, Lips Matthias, LLP. Education Award, Norvella C. Pendergrass, Esquire, Erie County District Attorney's Office. John L. Hargrave Law Student Award, Deja Graham, University at Buffalo School of Law. Tickets are on sale now through Wednesday, March 6th at 5 p.m. and can be purchased directly From the website of mybluehost.me. The cost is $175 per ticket and all proceeds benefit financial assistance for law students and people interested in a career in law. The Minority Bar Association Foundation, Incorporated, was formed in 2004 to advance education and scholarship in the field of law. We work to ensure continued minority representation in the profession and empower these future leaders to help shape the justice system in western New York and throughout New York State. Professional guidance, education programs, and financial assistance with LSAT preparation are provided to students at all levels. Additionally, University at Buffalo School of Law students are mentored, with resources to excel at passing the New York State Bar Exam. The foundation is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. Mayor Brown's and Buffalo's Office of Diversity to present the Black Business Expo. The Black Business Expo is set for Thursday, February 29th, at Seneca One. As Black History Month comes to a close in Buffalo, Mayor Byron Brown's Office of Diversity is pleased to present the Black Business Expo, an event that honors and promotes the achievements of Black-owned businesses in Buffalo and provides a networking opportunity for those interested in starting their own business. It also continues Mayor Brown's long list of initiatives that further promote diversity, inclusion, and economic development in our community. The Black Business Expo is hosted by a number of black agencies and will take place on Thursday, February 29th, from 4.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. on the second floor of Seneca One. Mayor Brown stated, As Black History Month comes to a close, the Black Business Expo continues our efforts to proudly honor and promote The achievements of local African American business owners and their legacy of resilience and entrepreneurship within our community. In collaboration with my Office of Diversity, I thank participants and vendors for taking part in the Black Business Expo in Buffalo, another great opportunity to inspire, mentor and support the next generation of aspiring Black entrepreneurs in Buffalo. The Black Business Expo includes a one-hour panel discussion about black business ownership beginning at 6 p.m. The moderator is Buffalo's chief diversity officer, Darren Saxon. Mr. Saxon said, Empowering black businesses isn't just about commerce. It's about community, resilience, and the celebration of diversity in entrepreneurship. A number of black businesses will be present at the event as both vendors and panel speakers, providing an opportunity for those interested in starting their own business to gain insights from successful black business owners, ask questions, and network. The event will also include black restaurants, giveaways from the Buffalo Urban Development Corporation, and music provided by WUFO. Edward E. Ross, the story of a Montford Point Marine. In December 2021, an historical treasure was found. Edward E. Ross, a Buffalo native who had died in 1981, had left his diary, untouched and unread until this time. No one knew about the diary of his World War II experiences. His family knew he'd served in the United States Marine Corps and was in the Pacific Theater. Nothing more. What they didn't know was that he was in a unique class of United States service members, the Montfort Point Marines. Paulette Ross and her granddaughter, Maya Bankhead, transcribed the diary and learned that he arrived in New River North Carolina on March 30, 1943. New River was the Marine Corps basic training camp for black recruits. Black recruits, called the Montfort Point Marines, were in place from 1942 to 1949 before the U.S. military officially desegregated in 1948. The Montford Point Marines were ultimately comprised of over 20,000 black men who were trained in segregated military units. Montford Point is now called Camp Johnson. Mr. Ross's experiences included serving on the USS Japara and the USS Crescent City, the Crescent City being a naval ship that went into the South Pacific, into the Solomon Islands, including the Russell Islands and Guadalcanal, and known for heavy fighting. He was a machine gunner, even though his actual job was to load and unload ships. Many black marines were classified for this position, even though they entered combat. Mr. Ross was well known for being a marksman, though he never rose above the rank of private. During his service, he wrote of handling the M1 calibers, Tommy guns, and the 40 caliber, he wrote of being with the 2nd Raiders Battalion, where he learned to fight in the jungles of the South Pacific. His unit entered Bougainville on December 10, 1943, where he experienced some of the most intense fighting. He wrote of starvation and living for days in foxholes with no food. He, a young black man from humble beginnings in Buffalo, became a machine gunner in the bomber Raiders and experienced flight at least six times. He wrote of the excitement of being on the plane for the first time and pride in using his marksmanship skills to help his country. On October 11, 1945, he wrote of returning to the United States and going to the Navy Hospital, as he had been very ill for over a month. He was on the USS Thurston for his return home. Upon his return home, it was found he'd contracted malaria. His journey home took him from the Russell Islands to Guadalcanal, then to New Hebrides, to New Caledonia, and finally home to the United States. The journey home took approximately two weeks from New Caledonia to the United States. Throughout his journeys, he joked about other military branches, exclaiming how the Marines were the best. He also spoke of missing his mother and sister, and perhaps most poignantly, how he wasn't sure that he'd share anything that had happened to him with anyone outside of his mother. Despite his experiences, some riddled with racial animus, he still enlisted as a reservist and had pride in his military service until his last breath. Upon his return home, Mr. Ross went on to work at Chevrolet until his death and raised a family, a family that never knew of the heroism and horrors he experienced as a result of war. NFTA to close out Black History Month with performance by Ya Asantiwa Drum and Dance Company. The Niagara Frontier Transportation Authority, NFTA, proudly announces the culminating event of Black History Month with a dynamic performance by the renowned Ya Asantiwa Drum and Dance Company. This electrifying showcase will celebrate the rich cultural heritage and contributions of the African diaspora through mesmerizing rhythms and captivating moments. The event will be held Thursday, February 29th, 12 o'clock to one o'clock p.m. at the Buffalo Transit Center, 181 Ellicott Street, Buffalo. The Asantewa Drum and Dance Company, named after the legendary Ghanaian Queen Mother who led the Ashanti Rebellion against British colonialism, is renowned for its vibrant performances that honor the spirit and resilience of African traditions. The public is invited to come together to celebrate diversity, unity, and the enduring legacy of black history. This event is free and open to the public, offering an opportunity for individuals of all backgrounds to connect, learn, and be inspired. We look forward to your presence at this extraordinary celebration of culture and heritage. Our health, don't accept falling as part of aging. More than 1 in 4 older adults, 28%, in the US report falling each year, according to Univera Healthcare's review of the most recent data available from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention (CDC). That translates to about 36 million falls each year, of which 36,000 result in death. Many who survive and recover from a fall lose the ability to live independently on a short-term or long-term basis, and those who require medical treatment may incur substantial out-of-pocket costs. According to the CDC, falls among older adults result in $50 billion in annual medical spending, including $12 billion out-of-pocket. Falls are not a normal part of aging and can be prevented says Univera Healthcare Medical Director Kelly Burchu, M.D., daily exercise, avoiding certain medications that can affect your balance, and even making sure eyeglass lens prescriptions are up to date can help to prevent falls. Burchard advises discussing these topics with your healthcare provider. She also re- recommends checking your home for obvious hazards such as clutter, worn carpets, stairs with rickety railings, rooms with insufficient lighting, unstable chairs or tables, bathrooms lacking grab bars, uneven transitions between bare floors and carpets. A simple test can help identify individuals at risk for a fall, says Bershu. It's called the timed up and go test or tug test, and anyone can do it at home. The tug test requires a stopwatch or wristwatch with a second hand, a chair, and a friend to assist you, wear regular footwear, and use a walking aid if needed. How to take the tug test. First, mark a line on the floor that's 10 feet away from the chair. Sit in the chair. When your assistant with the stopwatch says go, stand up from the chair, walk 10 feet to the line on the floor at your normal pace, turn and walk back to the chair at your normal pace and sit down again. Your assistant should start timing on the word go and stop timing after you sit back down. If you take 12 or more seconds to complete the tug test, you may have a higher chance of falling and should seek a health care provider's advice on actions you can take to reduce the risk. Be honest with your health care provider about issues with balance or concerns about taking a fall, says Virtue. Don't put your ability to live independently at risk because falling doesn't have to be a part of aging. You are listening to a reading of articles and features. From the Buffalo Criterion, on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Toward a Better Life by Eva M. Doyle. The 15th Annual Romeo Doyle Muhammad Scholarship Applications are now available. Application forms for the 15th Annual Romeo Doyle Muhammad Scholarship are now available. High school seniors who will be entering college in the fall of 2024 are eligible to apply. The criteria for the scholarship include the following. 1. This scholarship is open to a male or female student of color who will graduate from high school in June and plans to enter a two- or four-year college in the fall. 2. Eligible students must have a year average of no less than 85. three. Students must submit a copy of their recent report card and two letters of reference from the school guidance counselor, teacher, or principal. Four, applicants must write a one or two page essay stating their future career goals and how they plan to obtain these goals. Please note that this essay is a required part of the application. Five, applicants must also submit a letter of acceptance from the college that they plan to attend in the fall. 6. Students must include two phone numbers where they can be reached. Please write the phone numbers neatly and clearly. The deadline to apply is May 1, 2024. All applications must be sent by midnight on this date. The date of the award presentation will be announced later. Many area students have received this award in the past and they are doing well in their college careers. I have received thank you notes from past participants stating that they appreciated the award. One student even sent me a copy of his report card to let me know that he was doing well in college. I would like to encourage all scholarship award recipients to send me a letter or card letting me know how they're doing in college. It's important to start early to complete the application and submit your letters of reference. The Romeo Doyle Muhammad Scholarship is named in honor of my late husband, Brother Romeo. He made his transition on March 20, 2009. He was a great advocate of education, and he always encouraged young people to stay in school and do the right thing. He loved math. He was known for his expertise in the analysis and evaluation of numbers from a historical perspective. He was also known for helping others in need. Romeo Doyle Muhammad was a combat veteran of the Korean War. He served our country with honor and distinction. The scholarship is presented during his birth month in July. The date, time, and place will be announced later. For more information and copies of the application, you can call 716 847 6010. You can also send an email message to me at e. W-R-I-T-E-R-5-2 at roadrunner.com. Send the completed applications to Eva M. Doyle, D-O-Y-L-E, 425 Emsley Street, Buffalo, New York, 14212. Community Invited to Easter Programs Pastor Hamid Motley and the House of Mercy Evangelical Ministries, 629 East Elevan, invites the community to participate in two special services, Good Friday, March 29th, the seven last words at 10 a.m. Seven dynamic speakers will be participating in Easter Sunday services, March 31st, also at 10 a.m. Come and be blessed inmate to serve additional time for throwing urine at correction officer while incarcerated in Collins. Erie County District Attorney John J. Flynn has announced that 30-year-old Calvin Pietri was sentenced before Erie County Court Judge Susan Egan to one and a half to three years in prison as a second felony offender. His sentence will be served consecutively to his current prison sentence for another conviction. On the evening of November 20th, 2020, The defendant, while incarcerated at the Collins Correctional Facility, intentionally threw a liquid at the correction officer as the officer was collecting dinner tray from his cell. The substance was tested and determined to be urine. The correction officer was taken for medical treatment as a precaution. The defendant has since been transferred to Mid-State Correctional Facility, where he remains incarcerated. Pietri pleaded guilty to one count of aggravated harassment of an employee by an inmate, Class E felony, the highest sustainable charge, on Wednesday, August 16, 2023. Any crime committed by an inmate against a correction officer or jail deputy will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. I hope that the victim feels that justice has been served by this defendant receiving additional time in prison for this offense, said Erie County District Attorney John J. Flynn. DA Flynn commends Correction Officer Tricia Cole for her work in this investigation. The case was prosecuted by Assistant, Director, excuse me, Assistant District Attorney Brian DeSero of the Special Investigations and Prosecutions SIP Bureau. Buffalo Man indicted on murder gun charges for fatally shooting victim in Allentown neighborhood. 28-year-old Nigel L. Flint of Amherst was arraigned before Erie County Court Judge Sheila A. Tullio on an indictment charging him with one count of murder in the second degree, class A1, no AI, felony, in one count of criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree, class C, violent felony. It is alleged that on Saturday, September 16th, 2023, at approximately 4 a.m., the defendant intentionally shot the victim with an illegal gun on a 200 block of Allen Street in the city of Buffalo. The victim, 28-year-old Darnell J. Lynch, Jr., died at the scene. Later the same morning, at approximately 4.15 a.m., Buffalo police officers saw a vehicle traveling the wrong way on Mariner Street, a short distance away from the homicide investigation. Officers allegedly found a loaded, illegal handgun during the search of the vehicle. The gun was submitted into evidence for further testing. On Monday, January 29, 2024, Flint was located in Detroit, Michigan, where he was taken into custody on an indictment warrant. After waiving extradition proceedings, the defendant was returned to Western New York in mid-February to face prosecution. Flint is scheduled to return on Monday, March fourth, at 10 a.m. for a pretrial conference before State Supreme Court Justice Deborah Givens. He was held without bail. If convicted of the highest charge, Flint faces a maximum of 25 years to life in prison. D.A. Flynn commends the Buffalo Police Department Homicide Squad for their work in this investigation, as well as the U.S. Marshals Service Fugitive Task Force. The case is being prosecuted by Assistant District Attorney Christopher S. Sefolko, of the Homicide Bureau. As are all persons accused of a crime, the defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Williamsville man sentenced for making threats toward courthouses, witness. Jonathan J. Rzozka, forty one, a uh, williamsville was sentenced before erie county court judge suzanne maxwell barnes to three years in prison followed by three years of post-release supervision on the morning of friday december 16th 2022 the victim called the amherst police department to report that he had received a threatening text message from zoska which placed him in reasonable fear the defendant sent the text message to the victim while knowingly in violation of an existing order of protection The defendant previously sent a threatening text message to the victim on September 6, 2022, which placed the victim in reasonable fear. After the incident, a temporary order of protection was issued on behalf of the victim and his family. The same morning, at approximately 8.25 a.m., Erie County Central Police Services received a phone call from the defendant who threatened to blow up the Erie County Court Building and the Williamsville Village Court Building. The defendant's actions resulted in both buildings being evacuated and searched by the police. The defendant, who was scheduled to appear in court that morning, was taken into custody after he entered the parking lot of the Williamsville Village Court building. On November 13, 2023, Zozka pleaded guilty to two counts of making a terroristic threat, Class D felonies. One count of criminal contempt in the first degree one count of tampering with a witness in the third degree, Class E felonies, and one count of aggravated harassment in the second degree, Class A misdemeanor. The defendant pleaded guilty to all counts in the indictment against him as jury selection was scheduled to begin in his trial. Final orders of protection were issued for the victim and a witness, which remain in effect for the next five years. Canadian woman arrested charged with assaulting a CBP officer. U.S. Attorney Trini E. Ross has announced that Romaine Tumani, 29, of Ontario, Canada, was arrested and charged by a criminal complaint with assaulting a federal officer, which carries a maximum penalty of eight years in prison. Assistant U.S. Attorney Andrew J. Henning, who is handling the case, stated that on February 8, 2024, at approximately 12 p.m., Homeland Security Investigations received a report of a Customs and Border Protection officer being assaulted by Tumani at the Peace Bridge port of entry. According to the complaint, Tumani and her sister were traveling in an Uber vehicle when the Uber driver was referred for immigration inspection at the Peace Bridge and then told he'd have to return to Canada for insufficient travel documents. The Tumanis were told to retrieve their baggage from the vehicle and advised that CBP would be examining their luggage, which the sisters stated that CBP had no authority to do. As CBP officers attempted to return the Tumanis to the immigration inspection area, Romaine Tumani forcefully bit the arm of an officer and resisted efforts, multiple attempts, to place her in handcuffs. Tumani made an appearance before U.S. Magistrate Judge Michael J. Romer and was released on conditions. The complaint is a result of investigation by Customs and Border Protection under the direction of Rose Brophy, Director of Field Operations, and Homeland Security Investigations under the direction of Special Agent in Charge Matthew Scarpino. The fact that the defendant has been charged with the crime is merely an accusation, and the defendant is presumed innocent until and unless proved guilty. Defendant's Sentence for Committing Home Invasion Burglary in City's University Heights Neighborhood Erie County District Attorney John J. Flynn has announced that 56-year-old Stacy Fuller of Buffalo was sentenced before State Supreme Court Justice Betty Calvo-Torres to an indeterminate term of two to four years in prison. He was sentenced as a second felony offender. On Wednesday, June tw- July 27, 2022, at approximately 5.18 p.m., The defendant unlawfully entered a home on Allenhurst Road in the city of Buffalo with the intent to commit a burglary by removing a screen and climbing through a second-floor window. When the defendant went downstairs to the first floor, he encountered the homeowner in the kitchen. The defendant forcibly stole the victim's property by motioning underneath of his shirt as if he were in possession of a weapon while demanding her purse. The defendant fled after being confronted by the victim's son, The victim ran out of the home through the front door to a neighbor's home where she called the police. The defendant, who was not known to the victim, was arrested a short time after the incident. The defendant was found in possession of two bags that belonged to the victim, which contained her safe, personal papers, credit card, and jewelry. Fuller was arraigned in Buffalo City Court the following morning. He was held without bail. Fuller pleaded guilty to one count of burglary in the third degree, Class D felony. The defendant pleaded guilty on the morning that jury selection was scheduled to begin his trial in October 2023. A final order of protection was issued on behalf of the victim, which remains in effect for the next five years. D.A. Flynn commends officers Liana Luciano, Christopher Bauer, Steven Schultz, Connor Sumbram, and Detective Sergeant Rachel Ish of the Buffalo Police Department for their work in the investigation. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Buffalo Criterion on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. A Poet's Way. He said, Apostles, pastors, and teachers feed my sheep. The long run associated with the angel in love. She's an associate, and he has given a whole life insurance plan by Gaynell Williams. She thanked him for choosing her to enter the race. After the race, she's promised to see his face. She said, Lord... It's a long run up and down many hills. No time to admire or pick daffodils, low valleys and swampy places, stiff necks and stony faces. He said, never mind the stiff necks and stony faces. They are those who stand by the wayside just to spectate the races. He is the Lord. The long run requires patience and lasting power for endurance. He even holds the life insurance. Run, run, and run. It's not designed for fun, but rather to develop strength for the last hour. He said, you will get tired, but he will give you rest. His will is manifest. He is the Lord. From the first day of the race, she's been dying to see his face. Being her father, whom she has never seen, she imagined she would look like him, because he is at the end of the stem. He tells her, there are many things that are secondary, but when you put things first things first, such as himself, becomes hereditary. The father knows his child, and child knows the father. Having never seen the father, the angel in love used her imagination. Having the skill of imagination creates great stimulation. He said it's all right to use this power to imagine him. He is the Lord, and one day you will see me as I am, and to see me as I am will never change. To some, this will sound strange. Even if they should think, it is not strange. He is the Lord who created them in his own image. The angel in love was always a fast runner, but for the long run she knew it would take patience to endure to the end. Some days it's a slow pace, but on others she feels the energy of the race. He taught her to breathe deep for correct breathing is essential for the race. She is learning to breathe his breath, relax, drink enough water, and follow his instructions to endure to the end. She has read and reread the many love letters to comfort her on the way. Being ultimately inspired, she is specially wired in case of an emergency. When the long run is over, an eternal, incorruptible prize is guaranteed. This makes the race worthwhile. But just to imagine his face brings about a smile. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Out to Pastor. Who Doesn't Like baloney? by Dr. James L. Snyder. When I was young, my favorite sandwich was the bologna sandwich, sometimes with cheese and other things, but most importantly, bologna. I can't imagine what my childhood would have been like without those bologna sandwiches. It's been a long time since I've had a simple bologna sandwich for lunch. The gracious mistress of the parsonage is a culinary expert specializing in making delicious meals. We were talking about something the other night. I'm not sure if it was politics or sports, but I expressed my opinion as clearly as possible. When I was through, the gracious mistress of the parsonage just looked at me momentarily and said, "'You do know that you're full of baloney?' Last week I thought about pulling a little prank on her. I don't know what I was thinking, but I waited until she was in her craft room. I walked in and began looking around. Believe me, there's a lot to look at, and I'm not sure what I was looking at. "'What are you doing in here? Are you looking for something?' Looking at her with a serious glare, I said, I was just thinking that maybe I could come and help you organize your craft room. I have a lot of ideas of how you can make this a better organized craft room. When I finished, I looked at her, smiled, and said, So, what do you think? What do I think? Responded the gracious mistress of the parsonage. Let me tell you what I think. I think you are full of baloney. I do not need any help organizing my craft room, especially from you. I graciously left the craft room smiling and headed for my easy chair to enjoy my prank. A few days later, I was working in my office, and she stepped in for a moment and began looking all around at my bookshelves. For a few moments, all she did was look around at my books. Then she said, I think I can help you reorganize your office here. At that point, I didn't really know what to say because I didn't need any help reorganizing my books. I looked at her and said, do you think I'm full of baloney? She laughed at me and said, "'Yes, I do think you're full of bologna.' Then she left the office laughing and went back into the kitchen. I wouldn't say this to her, but I'm kind of thinking it might be that my bologna is one of the secrets of our good marriage. After all, what else is there? The best celebration we could ever have, in my opinion, is a bologna sandwich lunch. That would make my day, but I'm not sure she could handle all that bologna. Then, of course, she's handled me for 53 years. If she can handle that much bologna, she can handle anything.' I then thought of verse of scripture on this stu- subject. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3.3. 3. Thinking of this, it occurred to me how important agreeing really is in all relationships. Yes, there are certain things to disagree about. But the key is, what do we really agree about? Those things we agree on will establish a relationship of unity. Dr. James L. Snyder lives in Ocala, Florida with the gracious mistress of the parsonage. Telephone 1-352-216-3025. Email jamesnyder 51 at gmail. Website Jamessnyderministries.com. Spiritually Speaking, A Black and White Life Doesn't Come Close to Technicolor Living by James A. Washington, Jr., NNPA Newswire, I'm not sure whether or not I've talked about my faith walk from the point of view of those individuals who've tracked my progress from the beginning until now. They seem to have fallen into two quite different categories. The first group who noticed included those Christians around me who like me rejoiced in my rebirth. A lot of columns I've written, about, I've written were about those who prayed and rejoiced and breathed a sigh of relief at the mere thought of a new beginning for me. Discovery would be an appropriate word to use here. I know, as a result, I've discovered more about people I thought I knew after being saved than I ever thought possible before I was saved. My analogy is that I saw the world and my friends' as old black-and-white movies. Now they come across in technicolor and surround sound. It seems that being kindred spirits in Christ, we got it like that now. Now, the second group included those individuals who couldn't and still can't relate to me now. There are so-called friends of mine in this group, too. It's hard to explain, but Bible study, tithing, regular church attendance, prayer, praise, and I guess an honest attempt at wholesome living can bring out an unusual reaction in some folk. I know because I used to be one of those people who avoided anyone and anything that invited God into my life. I wasn't malicious or anything, it just wasn't part of my public program. So I understood the reaction I was getting from those in these, those in this group. Some thought it was a phase, others an addiction, and still others felt I was on some kind of moral guilt trip that I'd get over one day real soon. Many couldn't see the serious nature of my transformation because they too saw me only in terms of black and white. Others just refused to accept God as the reason that my behavior changed. There just had to be another reason. I must have a hidden agenda salvation and eternity were vague concepts to them what does eternity have to do with right here right now what is so easy to acknowledge in church and in bible study is at times impossible difficult at best to communicate elsewhere to people you knew when you did when and did all those things that you don't do anymore it can be tough if it were not for those christians who can and do relate to this those who know where they are today compared to where they were yesterday I might still see the world as only black and white filled with a bunch of gray people. Believe me, technicolor's is better. That's why it's so easy for me to relate to Paul. You want to talk about a transformation? It's a wonder Paul lived to tell anyone about Jesus. His life before the road to Damascus' enlightenment is a testament to what I'm talking about. Why should anyone believe anything that came from Paul's murderous mouth? I suppose the answer in hindsight is a pretty good one the words that came out of Paul's mouth were indeed put there by Jesus, the same Christ who knocked me down and picked me up as he also did to Paul. I've changed because I had no choice in this matter. And if you're saved, you don't either. But don't worry about it. This is a new me and a new you with a new life and new responsibilities. It is our willing obligation to at least give the Lord our best shot. As the commercial goes, just do it. I think you'll find Paul did that. The point is who you have become, and not how others view you. Sooner or later, they'll come to understand the change is real, and they'll just have to adjust to you or disappear. If they don't, you will. It's not as easy, but nobody said it would be. Stay the course, and may God bless and keep you always. From the Bible by Jerry Kingery, Do Good. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful, and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Depart from evil, and do good, and dwell for evermore. For the Lord loveth judgment, and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever the mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom and his tongue talketh of judgment the law of his God is in his heart none of his steps shall slide the wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him the Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him wherein he is judged wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land and when the wicked are cut off thou shalt see it i have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree yet he passed away and lo he was not yea i sought him but he could not be found mark the perfect man and behold the upright for the end of that man is peace but the transgressors shall be destroyed together the end of the wicked shall be cut off but the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. From Psalm 37. The Mighty Oba Sports Report. Las Vegas is a Super Bowl City by Pat Freedom, the Mi- Freeman, the Mighty Oba. Super Bowl whatever number, took place for the first time in a city that is built around gambling and sports betting. There was a time the NFL frowned at being part of the gambling world, but once the owners realized how much money they were losing, let us say it was a wrap. Las Vegas might go down as the best Super Bowl city ever, and that includes New Orleans because the stadium is connected to the Las Vegas Strip. So, all the energy from everything that Vegas has to offer is connected to the NFL franchise home of the Raiders. This is what we tried to explain to Western New York and our franchise ownership group, but they decided to go against the grain by creating their own eventual destination in Orchard Park, New York. The weekend of the Super Bowl grossed more than $1.1 billion with an influx of people of more than 400,000. Super Bowl week in Vegas honestly would be hard to trace its total fiscal impact on Las Vegas, but I believe it will go down as the largest grossing Super Bowl in history. This momentous week, I announced my newest book, Maximizing the Big Game, and had the honor to speak on several broadcasts during the week thanks to my publicist, Saida Ali, who did an outstanding job promoting me on Radio Row. The energy had returned to Radio Row, which was briefly hampered by the pandemic, but it seemed to be back again. Las Vegas only beat New Orleans because of the proximity of the stadium to the media staging grounds, which were located at Mandalay Bay and lay directly across to the stadium. Every person I ran into familiar with Western New York asked the same question of, why are they building an open-air stadium away from the energy of downtown Buffalo in a snow belt? My answer has been the same, that I truly do not understand the owner or our elected officials who just never began the proper planning back in 2013. If I have any disappointments in life, it's not accomplishing bringing a multi-use sports and entertainment complex to the region where I grew up. Finally, the Las Vegas Super Bowl will go down as the absolute best city to accommodate the big game, better than New Orleans, which is now on the clock. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the February 24th issue of the Buffalo Criterion. Your reader has been Dasha. Thank you for listening.